Uh, Scott gets to be our second to last guest speaker this morning. Obviously, we want you to come out and hear Matt Stern tonight. Uh, but just a little bit about Scott Boyer. He has been around here for just about 10 years because Scott came uh, when PJ first came to Mount Calvary. And I thought to myself, as a senior about to graduate, they brought in the enforcers to finish out my final year because they brought in these two big guys. Uh, but as, as I've gotten to know Scott over these last 10 years, I am blown away with his love and his passion for Jesus Christ. It didn't take too long to find out uh, that Scott was a big softie who really cared about me, my development, uh, and has cared about kids in our youth group for the last 10 years and still does. Scott works for Lancaster Bible College. He's a resident director, and he also serves as the... He develops young leaders, is how I'll describe it. Uh, he, just, he works with guys, uh, and he helps to develop men into men of God. And he helps to build them through their four years while they're at Lancaster Bible College. And for some of them, five and six years. Right, Scott? I think that was... I'll lead you in with that one. Okay, Scott's going to tell us about his five and six years at college, right? Maybe, maybe. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, so uh, welcome Scott Boyer as he shares with us. That was actually a, a pretty good introduction. So when I tell people, my, my title is Director of Student Success, which means nothing to anybody, okay? So they're like, okay, so now tell me what you actually do. So, um, but I, I'm excited to be with you this morning, excited to share with you. Uh, I had so many people this week tell me they weren't going to be here uh, that I started to take it personally, actually. Uh, I thought maybe they remembered last year when I was up here preaching. So, um, but uh, I'm excited to be with you this morning and excited to open God's Word uh, with you this morning as well. Um, we're going to talk about identity in Christ this morning, and uh, it's, it's an, an area where I've actually been camped probably for the last eight months. Uh, something that uh, God has laid on my heart for the last, uh, yeah, seven, eight months. Uh, it's been where I've done a lot of reading. It's where, uh, as I go comb through the scriptures, uh, it's these points that I keep pulling out that God keeps revealing to me. Uh, about my identity or who I am in him. And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, that this morning. And I feel like I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm not going to give you a fancy intro, even though I asked BJ this morning if he would play Who Are You by The Who during the worship set, and he declined. So, uh, so we're, uh, but we're going to jump in this morning. Uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. He has made us absolutely new, those of us who are in Christ. Um, he's made us new. He recreates uh, who we are. He's taken away the old identity. He's given us a new identity. And so the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ is not simply a down payment against past sin. It is that, absolutely. Um, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ also creates in you a new identity, uh, an identity given to you by God through Christ. <clears throat> and so we're going to talk about that this morning. The gospel is big enough to recreate who we are. I thought it really important that if I was going to get one shot at speaking to you, uh, that I would talk about this this morning, because um, I don't know that a lot of us live in that identity. And if I can be tr completely transparent with you this morning, uh, the reason I've been camped there for eight months is because it's something that I need to preach to myself every day, too. 
Uh, and so, uh, so this is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, John Owen says this, he says, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And so this morning, I want to take a minute to get acquainted with, those priv- with the privilege that it is to be found in Christ, uh, to be given that identity. So I want to pray with you this morning before we open the word. And uh, you can see up on the screen here, we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, but let me uh, open us in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the day that you've given to us. Thanks for life and breath today. And because you give us life and breath, you've also given us an identity to live. So I pray that we would live that, uh, that we would be people who live in light of the fact that your son has died for us. Thank you so much, Lord. Uh, don't let it ever be far from our lips that you uh, are an amazing God who redeemed uh, a sinful and lost people. Oh, Lord. Uh, I pray that as we study uh, the word this morning, uh, that you would reveal to us who we really are in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So while you're turning uh, to your copy of the word, 1 Peter 2, um, I want to tell you that my purpose is not to be exhaustive this morning. It would be completely uh, impossible for me to be exhaustive on the identity of God in uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Um, or if you'd really like, we can order lunch in and you can stay. But uh, So it would be completely impossible uh, to even, I would venture to even say, scratch the surface this morning. And so my goal this morning in, in teaching is that it might provide you with a week's worth of study from here, that it might provide you with a month's worth of, worth of study, or truly that it would ignite in you the same kind of passion it's ignited in me, to truly find out who I am in Christ. I don't think there's anything more important to the believer than to find out who uh, they really are in Christ. I want to say this because I don't steal people's material. Uh, there's, four, there's four books I've read in the last six, eight months that have really uh, helped me shape some thoughts. And so I, wanna, uh, I, I just want to tell you that the books Who Am I by Jerry Bridges, Identity by Eric Geiger, Gospel Wakefulness by Jared Wilson, and Slave by John MacArthur. And so some of those I have borrowed some thought from this morning, uh, but I don't plagiarize. So, uh, so those are some resources if you want to continue to study this. Uh, I want to encourage you to, to check some of those out. So let me read this uh, to you. First uh, Peter 2, starting in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, we find our identity in an awful lot of things, don't we? I was sitting and thinking about how I truly find my identity uh, and how I see uh, among culture how we find our identity. And it's, some of it's kind of silly. First, uh, I, think this is, I think this is something that guys do often, but uh, we find our identity in our job don't we? We find our identity in our career. And so we will invest ourselves fully into our career um, 
because somehow uh, it, uh, it validates us. And so it defines me. I'll spend 60, 70, 80 hours uh, at work because it'll define me. There's a product uh, at the end that, that somebody says, hey, good job. And sometimes I live for the good job, and, it def- and I let my work define me. Um, we also do this in our relationships, don't we? Uh, we allow ourselves to be validated by, uh, by other people. Who loves us? Uh, who cares about us? Who says nice things to us? Um, and who says not so nice things to us? We let those things validate us. Um, this is my identity. I've, I start to cling to the things that other people say to me. And so we find it in our relationships. We also find it in our stuff. I've got the nicest car, the biggest TV, or the newest I, whatever, uh, iPhone gadget. Uh, we start to validate ourselves based on what we have and not on who we are. Uh, and so we validate ourselves and our stuff. And then we also find our identity in our interests, hobbies, you could say. Um, I did a youth retreat, and I was uh, in Maryland, and a girl came to me, and she said, uh, she said, I love Justin Bieber so much that my friends call me Mrs. Bieber. Um, and she said, so you can call me Mrs. Bieber. And I said, I would like to call you crazy, actually. Uh, so, but we find our identity in our interests, don't we? We will invest ourselves heavily into this, um, the things that we are interested in. And so this morning I want to talk about finding our identity, our identity uh, like Peter says here. Peter knows what it looks like to live in his God-given identity, and he reveals it to us here. The thing I love about Peter is, remember Peter back in the Gospels, um, this disciple who is like lobbing off people's ears and who says like brash things and doesn't really demonstrate maturity in Christ. And then you get to First and Second Peter and you see this mature believer um, who's writing to... Uh, to encourage others to pursue Christ. And I love that. Uh, I love it because I, I kind of feel like I can see both sides of me uh, in both sides of Peter. Uh, and, uh, and so Peter knows what it looks like. So number one, Christ makes you a child of the perfect father. It says there in 1 Peter that you're a chosen race. And so the language that's used here is actually the language that would be used like adoption. You are chosen. God chose you. BJ talked last week about how he, we love him because he first loved us. He chose us. And so he has adopted us into his family. Uh, he has adopted us um, through his son Christ, or through his son Jesus. Um, He's chosen you to be his child. He brings you into the family, and Christ secures it on the cross. You're his child, and he is your perfect father. I know when I start talking about fathers, and I've been around, I spend most of my days with college students, and and so when I say the perfect father, some of you immediately shrink because you don't have a good example of what a father looks like. Um, 
I spent seven years as, uh, in the admissions office at LBC, and, and two things stood out to me more than anything when I would read autobiographies of students. Uh, one was how valuable camp ministry was. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Um, and the second one was um, how much the wound of fatherlessness uh, <clears throat> just affects, uh, affects us. And so when I start to talk about God as the perfect father, some of you immediately uh, have this like drawn back reaction. Um, I have to think every day, I have two boys. I have to think every day how I parent them as a father. Um, I try very, very hard to be a good father. My wife has been out of town all week. Um, so unexpectedly, she went to Chicago uh, for, uh, for LBC. And so my wife has been away all week. And so our lives at home, like it's kind of been like a chicken nugget fueled WrestleMania at my house right now. Okay. And so, but I wake up, I wake up in the morning right now and literally pray like, God, don't let me mess this up before breakfast. Uh, and most of the time, he's gracious enough to at least let me get to breakfast uh, before I, I mess it up. But I try and be a great dad to my kids. I've had a great dad, uh, have a great dad, uh, and he's modeled that for me. But the truth is, neither of the two of us are perfect fathers. Uh, I will let my kids down. Uh, I will do things that will cause them harm. I don't want to. Uh, my son Eli tumbled off the porch the other day. He's got a big goose egg on his head. Weston chipped a tooth at the babysitter the other day, so their mom is going to be excited to get home. Uh, but I can't be a perfect father. Um, but God can, and he is. He can, and he is. Listen to this. The, uh, 1 John 3, 1, How great is the Father's love. He's lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The word lavished here is written in perfect tense, which means this, that it is permanently fixed upon his children. He is not going away. He will not let you down. He can't be anything other than perfect. And John, or 1 John 3 tells us that we are his child. His love for us is eternal. Romans 8, 38, 39 tells us that nothing will separate us. It's personal. Romans 5, 8 tells us that he sent his son for you. It's intentional. Ephesians 1, 5 says he's adopted us. It's unconditional. If you remember Luke 15, the prodigal son. It's generous. Philippians 4, 9, he promises to meet our needs according to his riches. James 1, 17 says everything good ultimately comes from him. It purifies us. He invented tough love. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says that God disciplines us for our good. He's a perfect father. And it gives him great joy, and it ultimately gives him incredible glory um, to have you as his child. Eric Geiger says this in his book, Identity. He says, because he's the perfect father, we can freely and fully trust him obey him and reflect him so our response to having a perfect father is that we trust him then we obey him we do what he says 
And then we reflect him. We reflect him to other people. They should see in us um, our perfect father. So he's, he makes you the child of a perfect father. Number two, he does this. He makes you a priest. Christ makes you a priest. It says here, uh, uh, a royal priesthood. You're part of a royal priesthood in first, uh, there in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Um, and again, when I say that, some of you are probably going to shrink a little bit because uh, we have a perception of what a priest looks like, don't we? We think black shirt, white collar, um, never marries. Uh, and ultimately, uh, we think there's this, like, I don't know, righteousness that comes along in there. Uh, that's not what Peter's talking about here. Uh, it's not what first century believers would have understood either. When Peter tells us we're a royal priesthood, he's not talking about sending us off to a monastery or changing our wardrobe. He's not offering us, he's not offering this priesthood to Bible college students or to pastors. He's offering it to ordinary people like you and I who have jobs, families, frustrations, worry, pressure, and to people who ultimately have the overwhelming capacity to sin. Your identity as a priest actually impacts where you go. I think BJ did an awesome job last week of talking about uh, some of the, the temple ritual there. Um, part of the privilege was where the priest was able to go. The high priest held the privilege of entering the most sacred place in Jewish culture. He could go into the most holy place. The most holy place was the most important room in the temple, and before that it was the most important place in the tabernacle. And only the high priest could enter. No one else could go there. No one else had the honor. No one else had the privilege because ultimately no one else was invited. It's who God invited in was the high priest. And so Hebrews 9 tells us, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So the temple and the tabernacle were divided. There was the outer court, then there was the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. You and I in this room would have been outer court kind of people. Uh, we would not have been welcomed in. Um, and so the place that everybody longed to be was behind that second curtain. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, which is where God met with man. So you can see why there's privilege here. With that history in mind, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you get access. He invites you in. When he says you're part of this royal priesthood, God chooses to invite you in. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place of the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is the body, that, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We get to go from outer court through the holy place into the most holy, where God is. We don't have to wait for a priest to do that for us. Christ has made us priests, those of us who are in Christ. 
And it says that we confidently, with no fear, with no insecurity, we get invited in. This would have been huge news, huge news to the first century believer. Christ changes everything. His payment of sin on your behalf makes it possible for you to to be back in a relationship with your Father. We just read in Hebrews 10 there that it's by the blood of Jesus. He makes it possible. You and I are not worthy. He makes it possible. In the old system, the high priest would make a sacrifice once a year. It would have been a blood sacrifice from an animal. Um, It's no coincidence that Jesus' death was bloody. It had to be. It had to be a suitable sacrifice, and he was. When Christ died, a new way opened up for us. Before the curtain separated us from God, and now it's open. Matthew 27, 50 through 51 says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. There's our access. Through the blood of Christ, we boldly approach the throne. So as a priest, you go before God in confidence by the blood of Christ You draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. He has invited you in. Um, Don't neglect that privilege. Don't don't neglect the fact that he's invited you to meet with him. Here's the third thing. Christ makes you a pure bride. It says here in 1 Peter 2 through 9, or 2, 9 through 12, that um, you're a holy nation. Again, the same language would go to talk about the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. Uh, I am not ashamed to tell you that I have a Pinterest, okay? Some of you will chuckle, okay? Uh, I have a Pinterest, and uh, before you make judgment on me, I want to tell you why I have a Pinterest. Um, I started to notice that that there were recipes on Pinterest, and if I would pin them, some of you don't know what Pinterest is, and this is going to sound awkward, but if I would pin them to my board, okay, there's like a 7 in 10 chance that my wife is going to make that this week, okay? <laughs> so, so, before you make judgment, okay, I, guys, some of you are, are downloading Pinterest right now on your phones, okay? But so, I got this Pinterest, and I, I started to pin these recipes and then like people wanted to start following me which was odd because I I'm a guy and I'm on Pinterest and and so but then these people would follow me and here's what I started to notice about uh, things on Pinterest is every young lady that follows me has a wedding board okay it's incredible uh and the Probably the the even funnier thing is that most of them aren't even dating anybody, okay? Some of you are hiding your head right now. Uh, But there's this great anticipation about being the bride um, that would lead even young ladies who are not even dating a guy right now to start thinking about the day when they get married, about the day that they get to be the bride. So there's this great anticipation Those of us who are believers in Jesus are called the bride of Christ. We're pure, 
holy, set apart, spotless. He makes us that way. We don't get to make ourselves that way. He makes us that way. And we should be there with great anticipation. Sin distorts the beautiful picture of the bride, though. Many of us, even though Christ has made us his bride, don't feel worthy. We still live in bondage and guilt and shame. How many of you have ever said things like this? There's no way God could forgive me for what I've done. My past is so dark that God won't even use me. Other Christians don't struggle like I do. Look at this mess. I'm better to just give up and accept that God couldn't love me. God's got to be ashamed of me for the things I think. I'll tell you that those are insults from the enemy. Sure, we'll still sin because if you still wear skin, you have the capacity to sin, okay? Which I've noticed that that's all of you today, and it's me as well. Uh, we have the overwhelming capacity to sin, but positionally, God has already viewed you as pure and spotless. He looks at you through his son. It's your job and my job to live in the position that God has already placed us in. Listen to the, these things that God says in his word. It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8.1. Christ declares you are no longer a slave to sin, Romans 6.6. 6. God says you have received his righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30. God says you've been set free, Galatians 5.1. God declares you righteous in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. 21. See, when you get the pardon, you actually get the pardon. Christ isn't a down payment, and then you go figure it out after that. His death is sufficient enough to save you, and it's also sufficient enough to keep you. He meant now and forever when he said, it is finished on the cross. He freed you from having to measure up. Uh, and when I start to realize that, it's weight off my shoulders. Uh, he frees me from having to measure up because he's already made the sacrifice. You know this verse well. Every time you go to a wedding, they probably read it. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25-32. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The profound mystery here is that we become the body and bride of Christ. When you became a Christian, you were, you were united with Christ. You are one with him. He cares about you as he cares for himself. So it means that you are completely forgiven. God can wipe away can wipe the slate clean because he chooses to do so through his son. As his bride, we must live like it. We must know that sin is disobedience to the covenant uh, that we have as his bride. But we ultimately need to know that he's faithful when we mess it all up. 
He is the faithful one. Um, and he still calls you his bride. Here's the fourth thing. Christ makes you the servant of a worthy master. It says uh, in, our, uh, in our passage in 1 Peter, it says uh, that you are a people of his own possession. Um, I mentioned earlier that we find our we sometimes find our identity in our jobs or our titles, um, which I think is so funny that I have such a weird title uh, on my job. But we find our identity in that. We introduce ourselves as that, hey, I'm the, you know, uh, director of awesomeness or whatever you are at your job. Uh, And so, um, and so we, we introduce ourselves like that. And we see actually in Philippians, that Paul and, Paul and Timothy introduced themselves with a very interesting phrase. They say, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. So they've intentionally given themselves the title of servant. Um, the word is doulos, uh, and it means uh, that they are willingly putting themselves under the serv- as a servant under a master. The key word there is willingly. They have chosen to do it. So at your next business meeting or book club or when you go for a first day of school or whatever, you should try and introduce yourself that way. Hello, I'm a servant of Christ. Uh, Here's here's a little bit of history that in Jewish culture, if somebody fell on hard times, they owed money, they would end up going into servanthood uh, with, uh, with a master. It was usually the person they owed money to. And so they would work for them. Scripture clearly outlines what that looks like in Deuteronomy. It, it talks about how you would work for six years, and on the seventh year you would, uh, you would actually be set free. So this servanthood was, was a, a period of time. And in the seventh year, you could be set free. But you could stay with your master. Uh, you could choose to say, choose to stay. And here's what would happen is, um, they would put uh, Deuteronomy fifteen twelve and through 16 and 17 says but if your servant says to you I do not want to leave because he loves you and your family and is well off with you then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life so I was thinking about doing a demonstration this morning but I couldn't convince anybody to be my servant for life uh, but they would, the earlobe, you get your earlobe up against the door and you would put something through your earlobe, okay? I think you kind of had to be committed to be then that person's servant for life, right? Like for them to be able to push something through your earlobe. Um, but they willingly chose to stay. <clears throat> Before Christ, you owed a debt. This one's pretty simple. Because of sin, you owed your life. It's a debt you could not pay. You cannot pay that debt and you're without hope, yet Christ in his mercy purchased you and made you his own. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 20 and 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 tell us that he bought you not with silver or gold, but with his own blood. And you were bought with a price. You stay with your master because you love him and he's a good master. He's not a tyrant master. God is not a tyrant master. He's a good master. 
what Christ did for his disciples in the upper room in John 13 is a snapshot of what he's done for us. He took off his royal robes. He humbled himself. He stooped down to their level, placed himself in a human body, and served. Just as a master, uh, just as a, a master would rescue a person from a life of hopelessness, our master has rescued us. So the early Christians proudly bore this title of doulos, proudly bore the title of bondservant. They embraced their identity as a servant, and it impacted the way that they lived. So how do we live? You're a servant. Maybe you've never realized that before, but you are a servant. He has purchased you with his blood. Serve the master. Serve the master. Here's the next one. I promise I will finish at some point. Christ makes you an ambassador. It says this, that that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That you may proclaim the excellencies. He's calling you to be an ambassador. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Being an ambassador is about who you are and not what you do. So this is not just uh, go evangelize. This isn't, uh, that's not what an ambassador is. Evangelism is part of that, uh, but, it's, but it's bigger. <clears throat> Have you ever met a Jesus, uh, a Jesus salesman? Uh, somebody that um, <clears throat> ev- they can turn everything into a spiritual conversation. Uh, if you have ever followed the, the comedian Michael Jr., he does this thing he calls people that are oversaved. Uh, so he makes these references like if someone asks you for, the, for directions to the mall and you say, I was lost once too. Or, or somebody says, uh, hey, are you thirsty? And you say, thirsty for Jesus. Okay, you turn everything into a spiritual conversation. So when you see the words redeem this coupon and you spend the next hour preaching to a piece of paper uh, to redeem uh, said coupon. Uh, Sometimes we peddle Jesus like he's a product and not a person. We peddle him like, like, hey, just buy into this. Um, Mark 8.34 says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus' invitation was not to be a product of your life. His invitation was to come and die. His invitation was to deny yourself and follow me. He wasn't a product. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, we see this, that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are reconciled to God and now carry the ministry of reconciliation. He includes you and I in the plan. 
you and I are now ministers of reconciliation. An ambassador is a high-ranking official who represents the king, and I don't think we could get a better picture here. We're a high-ranking official who gets to represent Jesus. We get to represent Jesus to those uh, who are around us. We have a mission, and it's not to peddle Jesus like a product, but the mission is to stand for him, to love on his behalf, to show compassion, and to open our mouths and tell of the wonders of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus leaves earth, he speaks to his disciples and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As an ambassador, we are his witnesses. Our job is to magnify Christ. Put the spotlight on him. An ambassador wouldn't take credit for anything that the king would do. He would always magnify the king. And that's your job, and it's my job, if you are in Christ, to magnify the king. Here's the sixth one. There's only seven, so those of you who are already making your way to the doors, just hold tight. Christ makes you the friend of God. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He has pulled you into relationship. Um, <clears throat> Again, I, same retreat I spoke at, uh, and I actually talked about this very concept at that retreat where the girl, where Mrs. Bieber was. Um, and I talked about the friend of God, and then the next day this guy wore a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy, okay? That's not, like, that's not the friend of God that we're talking about, not this irreverent, he's my buddy uh, kind, of, uh, kind of God. Uh, and so... Uh, so don't write in your notes that Jesus is my homeboy or God's my BFF or anything like that. He, what we're talking about as far as friend is deep personal relationship. That God wants a deep personal relationship with you. When John Wesley was on his deathbed, he called, uh, he called his friends close to him and he breathed, when he breathed his last words, he said this, best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. We know that it was prophesied in Isaiah that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. He'd be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was a common name then, but Emmanuel is reality of who he is. He is God with us. God's desire is our life be with him. Luke ten thirty-eight through 42 is the story of Mary and Martha. Um, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations they had, that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Jesus comes to this house. He's tired from walking, sits down. Mary sits at his feet. Martha gets extraordinarily frustrated. She's worried about all the things that are yet to be done. Tell her to help me, is what Martha says, which I think is awkward because she's yelling at the Lord. Uh, but... Martha's busy doing 
things for Jesus that she forgets to actually be with Jesus. And I'll take a small pause and say that if you're involved in ministry, I think this is one of the most dangerous things you can ever, uh, you can ever do. You've got to guard yourself if you're serving in ministry. You cannot neglect inward growth at the expense of outward service. You can't neglect it. You cannot neglect to be with Jesus just to do things for Jesus. Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. He's telling Martha that I am the best part of the meal. Um, It doesn't matter what you put on the table. It doesn't matter that things aren't in order. I am the best part of the meal. How many of you have ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse? Um, If not, I mean, if you don't get anything out of today, I'm just kidding. So these Brazilian steakhouses, they literally walk around with these like swords full of meat, okay? It's my kind of place. Um, And you flip this like red and green chip over. If you flip it to green, you get to eat. Like they come to your table and slice off meat for you. Um, So it's go green or go home, okay? Um, But they also have this salad bar, okay? And... It's kind of, it's the first thing you go to. You go to the salad bar, and uh, I made the mistake the first time I went to a Brazilian steakhouse of, I was totally full by the time I was done with the salad bar. It's, it's a good salad bar, okay? But I'm, like, really full. And uh, what I did was I filled up on the cheap stuff. It's exactly what they wanted me to do, is eat a bunch of salad so that they didn't have to give me a bunch of meat, okay? Um, bad illustration, Okay, but don't fill up on the cheap stuff. Don't fill up on the cheap stuff of just outward doing. Um, The good stuff is being. Um, Your doing should flow out of your being. Uh, Okay, Um, don't make it the other way around. Mary chooses the best part of the meal, and Martha just fills up on the cheap stuff. God gives us his spirit. He shares his thoughts with us through the spirit. He includes you and I. From the very beginning in Genesis 2.19, he lets Adam name the animals. It wasn't because he was tired or disinterested. He lets him name name the animals. We just talked about the ambassador. You're included in the plan. He also wants you to enjoy him. In John 12.2, there's an account of a different meal with Mary and Martha, and Lazarus is there after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. It says that Lazarus was reclining at table with Jesus. Where else would he be? Jesus raised him from the dead. Okay? You don't skip that because there's a baseball game on. He's there with Jesus, enjoying him. So God calls us his friend. Our response should be to live in close relationship with him. Enjoy the best part. Don't fill up on the cheap stuff. Here's the last one. He makes you a citizen of glory. Peter says this, that you are sojourners and exiles. Um, The NIV translates it that you're aliens and strangers. Which when I say aliens, some of you are pumped about that because it describes the person sitting next to you. Uh, but so, uh, so you're an alien, or you're a stranger. You do not belong here. P- 
Peter's writing to people who are struggling to know how to live in this world. There was intense persecution. There was a devastating fire in Rome. Nero is the emperor, and there's this devastating fire in Rome. And who gets blamed for it? Christians. Believers get blamed for it. The funny thing is, is Nero probably set the fire. He had a love for building new things. And so he was probably the one that actually set this fire. But when he sees the people are upset, he blames it on Christians. So these first century Christians are actually in deep persecution. So Peter's reminding them of who they are. You don't belong here. You're an alien. You're a stranger. So there's three choices when it comes to how we fit. You are either a a citizen of this world. This world is your home. You live like you have dual citizenship, like this world uh, is your home and heaven is your home, or you live like you're a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20 tells us, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, um, don't live like this world is your home. And I would say this too, don't live like you have dual citizenship. It will create so much inconsistency in your life. Uh, And God hates inconsistency. The original meaning of the word alien here, or sojourner, is that you are someone who lives alongside people who belong here. Uh, You live alongside the people who belong here. Peter is begging people in this passage to live out their identity, to remember that this world is not their home, that they don't belong here, that the persecutors in the first century were watching. The people of this world were watching to see how these believers were living. And I would say to you that the world is still watching. And I would take an educated guess in saying that a lot of people don't like Jesus because they, fall, uh, because they fail to see Christians living their identity as aliens and strangers. They see us with one foot in the world and one foot in glory. So it should challenge us to flee from sin and it should compel us to live well among people. I think a funny thing happens here. When you live like you don't belong here, that's attractive to other people. It helps you be a good ambassador. Um, When you live like you have treasure somewhere else, as John Piper puts it. He finishes out this passage in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 by saying, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. So let me wrap up. Believer, Christ makes you a child of a perfect father. He makes you a priest. Christ makes you a pure bride. Christ makes you the servant of a worthy master. Christ makes you an ambassador. He makes you the friend of God, and he makes you a citizen of glory. So the challenge, believe it. Believe it and live it. God has given you an identity through his son that you might display his infinite glory and not your own. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we believe it. I pray that I believe it and that I live it. Lord, um, just pray that we take what we've learned today 
and continue to apply it to our lives. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. We don't have to measure up anymore. I'm so thankful for that. Lord, I pray for anyone who might even be here who doesn't have that relationship with Christ, Lord, that maybe today would be the day that they talk to the person next to them, or um, Lord, that they would come and talk to me afterwards. Lord, um, thank you uh, for uh, the fact that we can have salvation in your son and that you've also chosen to give us identity uh, in, uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection as well. In Jesus' name, amen.